Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The narrative we're told for the most part culturally in the States is that creativity, creative projects, creative pursuits, your art is the thing you get to when you're done being responsible. So if you're responsible enough to the machinery that pays rent, that you know, that pays taxes, if you're responsible enough to the machinery, then you earn the right long-term to do the things that are actually best in you that you desire and you love. That's the narrative. And it's freaking everywhere. It's like, it's, and there aren't like specific places from whence this thing comes, but it's absolutely everywhere. And you couldn't find a college student who doesn't feel that pressure to like get the degree you're supposed to get so you can make the money you're supposed to make so that eventually maybe you can retire and maybe, maybe enjoy your freaking life. Whereas like the thing I started doing early on was like, ah, there are things in me that I really want to tell stories. I want to get on stage and make people laugh. Like I want to, these creative things that are in me, these creative ideas, like I'm just, I'm going to bank on this and live my life this way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Justin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I found out uh, about you and your work by way of your publicist who told me about your book. It's what you make of it is what you make of it, creating something great from what you've been given. And I think what intrigued me most about your story was that you're this sort of multi hyphenate person who's a pastor musician and, and you do all these sort of things, uh, you know, as well as being an artist. Um, but before we we get into all of that, uh, given that you're a pastor, I wanted to start by asking what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with and how did those end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Good question. Um, so I wasn't really raised with anything directly. My mother, um, grew up Catholic and, um, she had sort of the, I guess the dust (laughs) of her religious practice around the house and like some of the artifacts, but it wasn't, there wasn't any sort of regular, uh, religious, training or conversation in her household. It was a little bit shied away from my dad was not uh, vehemently anti, but was not for it. That religion was for weak people, for weak-minded people. It was a thing that you needed if you needed it. But if but up until the point you need it, then don't. So it's fine for other folks, but you're strong, so don't. 
Uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't really raised with it. When I started my faith journey, I was like kind of 17, 18 or so. Um, and the things that have informed, that informed me since then, uh, have a lot to do with, um, not knowing that, um, I've never felt the pressure to get it. Um, that my religious training was, was one of, uh, process and growth. And so I've never felt a, a real, uh, push to come to really solid conclusions about a whole lot. Um, that's been a pretty significant portion. Uh, or a significant aspect of my religious training. Yeah. Um, what is it that, that prompted your faith journey? At 17 seems like a really young age to begin a faith journey. I saw the life of someone else who I really admired, uh, not uh, for any like really hyper-specific reason, but I liked the way, I liked the way he related with other people. I liked the peace I found in him uh, as a friend. Um, I really, I, I was struck by his willingness to make room for me in his life. And um, I wanted to know what made someone like that tick. And he said that it was his faith. And so I decided to give that a shot. Ultimately, really was that. Like, I didn't have some sort of moment. I didn't have like a, I didn't have a, a revelation. I didn't uh, come to the end of some intellectual process and thought, okay, I got it. I was honest to God, like intrigued by someone else's life. And I decided to figure out like, okay, if that works for you, uh, I like you, what would that look like to work for me? And I've been yeah. <laughs> on that road kind of ever since. Well, I think the the thing that struck me most about what you said is that you haven't come to any sort of absolute conclusions. And, um, that's one of the things I think I've always resisted about organized religion, that and the fact that I'm Indian and all Indian religious traditions are really time consuming and kind of mind numbing. Yes. And what I wonder, uh, you know, is what do you think people misunderstand about people of tremendous faith? Uh, because mm -hmm. I think that, you know, from the outsider perspective or somebody like me or, you know, somebody who's like your dad, we basically see people who are extremely religious as sort of fanatics who don't think for themselves, who you know right. need somebody to tell them what to do. And, you know, given that I'm talking to you, I'm pretty sure that's not accurate. Those are my own biases at work. Uh, yeah. So what do you think that, you know, those of us who aren't particularly religious misunderstand about the people who are? Um, I, I was, uh, the way I would say it would be um, that some of the, yeah, some of the assumptions I would want to chase down and murder with a blunt weapon would are things like um, that religious people aren't conflicted. Um, yeah, they are. Everybody is. Um, because that's the shape of the human soul. Is like you're at conflict with yourself regularly. Um, it's part of what it means to grow mature and evolve as a human. It's like who you were the day before, what you thought the day before, or the week before, the year before. It Like it changes. And that means that you're often in conflict with yourself. Also, there isn't a way in which we don't entertain new information without being conflicted if it comes in conflict with previous understandings of the world. Everyone is conflicted. The Which takes you to the second part is, and I don't mean to make everyone who's part of a religious system a victim, but the systemization of religious practice does make it really difficult to live as a conflicted individual. That a lot of what ends up happening is the desire to live in allegiance with the tribe and not to be kicked off, which kicked out, which is like, 
that's just evolution. Like you want, you find a tribe, you find safety in the tribe and you want to stay in the tribe because that's where safety and protection and flourishing is. A lot of why like the hyper-religious come off so damn secure is you kind of have to, or you feel at least like you have to in order to remain part of the tribe. It's not actually true. It's not actually what's going on in the soul. Um, that would be the primary assumption I would want to chase down. It's like, yeah, maybe this person does come off like <laughs> entirely settled on all of these massive issues that are wildly conflicted issues. They're not. They're actually not. Um, and it given safety and given, uh, I'll just use the word, given safety, given grace, given time, given attention, given opportunity, everybody, be- everybody becomes more human in relationship to other humans. Well, what about the assumption that religious people are prudish, that, you know, these are people who don't have any fun, they don't, you know, do, you know, any drugs or drink or not that that's necessarily what it means to have fun, but uh, the assumption that, oh, these people just don't have vices and, you know, they're holier than that. Like, is that completely inaccurate? And and what about you? Are you a person who has vices? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, am, do, um, (laughs) I don't, uh, how should I say, this is actually a fascinating question. So on the one hand, um, yes, I think it's a pretty fair assumption to, to make that a lot of religious folks end up prudish in response to, or in relationship to like moral education, like how, what does it look like to live well? And specifically, what does it look like to avoid things? That's where prudishness comes from, right? It's not necessarily always that the thing itself um, is bad, that sex is bad. It oftentimes does come from a place of like, you could get hurt there. And so it, perhaps it would be better. So like sex before marriage, as an example, like, uh, it, it's one thing to, and I don't I understand. It's one thing to be like, well, you know, that that's, that's old timey thought, et cetera. The other side of the coin is like the amount of trauma there is in, in young persons, particularly young women before they turn 27, um, that comes in the context of, uh, like untrained, uh, or un, like, uh, I don't know, uncared for sexual experiences is pretty significant. And so like some of that prudishness isn't necessarily prudishness. Some of it is actually fair warning. So, uh, it's not always just like, oh, you're prudish and you shouldn't be. Sometimes it's like, yeah, there really are actually early warning signs about certain behaviors or functions in the world that like can be really freaking damaging to people. And are there more loving ways to approach those conversations than just saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't hang, hang out with girls who do? Yes, absolutely. There are better ways to approach that. But some of those warnings, a lot of those warnings are really, really freaking fair. Yeah. Well, so, you know, that makes me wonder what role, you know, our modern media plays in the narrative that we have about religion. Yeah. Because, you know, if you, you look, you know, in one way, Religion has been the source of so many conflicts in the world. Uh, You know, as an Indian person, I know that that's the primary source of, you know, the conflict that India has with Pakistan in a lot of ways. And that has been going on for 30 years. And I I think think about the number of wars. Yeah, I think I would push back and say, I don't, I would change, I I would flip that. I've had the conversation a a bit. I I would push back and say, I don't know that religion would be the, 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 the driving reason so much as it is oftentimes the most available and convenient and pervasive justification that the reasons we actually tend to go to war in actuality are sometimes, sometimes personal, but oftentimes they're, they're economic. They're mostly economic. Um, and, uh, the, the religion tends, tends to be 
like the pervasive justification for that. So whether you're talking about like, you know, I, I was listening to the NPR report this morning that, you know, the president of the United States is, is, is meeting with the, uh, with, uh, Israeli prime minister. I can't remember the Israeli prime minister's new name. Um, but not that he has anyways. And, you know, like it's really easy to jump to like, well, it's, 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 you know, because it's, um, it has this long religious history that, um, like, uh, that it's about being Jewish and it's about, and it's about being non-Jewish, that it's about being, um, uh, Muslim. And I like, without pretending like I'm a full-blown expert, my experience in conversation with folks who work in those conflicts is that the religious differences are actually there, but the, the, the occupations come because it's an, it's an economic decision and it's a cultural identity decision. And the religion part ends up being like the easiest most pervasive justification that I can get over doing the thing that I want to do that I really want to do. Like Israel wants to possess this land and that's an economic decision that's to some degree justified by religion, but not entirely rooted there. But then it's justified in the narrative by religion, which makes it easier to do and get support for it. That's been my experience in my philosophy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So, you know, this is just a fascinating conversation to me because uh, my parents have become more religious as they've gotten older. And I, there was a time when, you know, they would fight me on this. And now their request is just go to the temple on New Year's. And that's all we'll ask with some <laughs> occasional requests to like attend pujas and things like that, because yes. all our religious traditions are ridiculously long. But my bigger issue with a lot of Indian religious traditions is that they sound more like superstition than faith. There's mm. no explanation for any of them. So the one I always come back to is, for 20 plus years, I have been told that you're not supposed to get your hair cut on Tuesdays, uh, you know, and I believe that to the point where even though I know it's nonsense, I still won't go get my hair cut on Tuesday because I have this, you know, ridiculous. Do you know what the root, do you know what the root of that is? Well, so I've looked for this. So first I asked, you know, some guys at an ashram in India uh, that run a surf camp slash ashram. And one of them said, oh, well, barbershops in India are closed on Tuesdays. And I was like, that's ridiculous. We live <laughs> in America. We've logic. lived in America for 25 years. Yeah. And I was like, that's not enough. I'm not going to go, you know, I, I'm not going to settle there. So like, okay, why are barbershops closed? So I went to Google, which led me to Quora. And the answers were absolutely ridiculous. Barbers mm. need days off too. They need days to sharpen their tools after cutting all that hair. <laughs> I mean, and okay. so I've never been able to find an explanation. And my mother uh, has no explanation for so many of our religious traditions. And she said, this is just what we do. And so that's one issue that I have. So one, you know, how, where do, how do we end up with these sort of narratives around faith that nobody has any explanations for? And then two, how do we get into situations of extremism where people mm. become fanatical? So I, the one question, uh, you know, how do we get into these situations? Uh, uh, this is not just a religious uh, pattern. It's true in romantic relationship. It's true in uh, in business dealings. It's true in economics. Is We end up doing things because they've worked in the past. And actually really, like, not that I like the answer as an answer, but, you know, your friend's answer it's like, well, because they're closed on Tuesdays. Well, they're closed on Tuesdays because of the belief that you shouldn't get your hair cut on Tuesday. Like, the, <laughs> like that's why, that's why we end up there is because you had this belief. And at some point we do lose touch with what might have been a very real or very helpful, um, uh, like suggestion about how to live best. So who the hell knows? But maybe at some point there was like this, maybe it was as simple as like the Jewish Sabbath day. We're like, listen, for barbers, let's just make it Tuesday. And because these people do need some rest, maybe it was as simple as that. But be, but because, and this is part of why I do what I do, but because there's this storytelling absence, the absence of storytelling, we just kind of do the task. Um, we, we lose touch with the heart of the suggestion or the heart of the instruction. That's part of how we get to like just doing crap because we do crap. It's because it's been done that way. But at some point, someone made a decision. And I just believe this about human people at some point, someone made a decision because they honest to God thought it was best. Like, I just, I, I don't buy the notion that just people just create systems, systems of control just to do so. I think 99% of the time, yes, there's huge jerks in the world who create systems of control to do so because they want to have power, because they want to shape the world in, in, in their image and all that kind of stuff. I get it. That's true. 
most of the time, folks are making the best that they, as they can with what they have on hand. And then we lose touch. We lose the thread somewhere down the line. We end up just kind of doing things in repetition just because we do them and we forget why. That's one. The second part is like, how do we do, how do we get to extremism? <laughs> Uh, this is be, this will be a really cheap answer and there are way better people like Jeremy Courtney who can dig into this kind of thing with way more history, but, um, traumatized people, traumatized people, hurt people, hurt people. That's true on the personal level. That's true in leadership. That's true in religion. It's true in business. It's true in every facet of, uh, of the world. So is it, if you put a traumatized, injured hurt, scared little boy who grows up in his, into his 40s, 50s, and 60s at the head of a multi-billion dollar you know, international conglomerate, he'll probably create a, a business model and business practices that are relatively abusive in usury of the people who are subservient to him. That's part of how we get to what I would suggest is a very unspoken form of his extremism, which is the one in which like we are constantly semi-enslaving people to 60 to 80 hours of work to the bottom line of some corporate company that makes widgets. Um, we get to extremism because people are unhealthy and don't do their damn work. That's kind mm. of it. Like that, that happens in, in the, it happens in relationships where if you don't do your work, you're going to hurt the people you're with. And it happens in business leadership and it happens in religious leadership. These aren't people who are necessarily just following the edicts of their religion and thereby become extremists. They're broken humans who have been granted or handed or taken immense amounts of power and are utilizing the, the justifications of their religion to propagate violence on people in the name of their religion. They're injured people, yeah. and so they pass on injury. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because uh, as we were saying that, I couldn't help uh, but think about uh, the Branch Davidians. I grew up, you know, in Texas uh, from 1986 to 1983, and I very distinctly remember the the sort of ambush at Waco happened when I yes. was a freshman in high school and watching it on TV. And what I wonder, you know, you mentioned the people who are these kinds of leaders are hurt. Um, how is it that people become so susceptible to following somebody like this? I mean, I know they're incredibly charismatic because we did an mm -hmm. entire series of cults and they build these sort of, um, you know, cults of personality around themselves. But, you know, these aren't complete idiots who end up in these situations yeah. like reasonably intelligent people find themselves in situations like this all the time. Yes. Um, and, and then we go back to like, yeah, I can, you can be as intelligent as you want to be. Uh, you can be as well-informed in every aspect of your life as you want to be, but there are aspects of your soul and your psychology that remain soft and, uh, and susceptible to manipulation. Um, like it, you know, <laughs> there is no imperviousness to the need for community and relationship. And so, like sometimes it's this is a really lonely human being who's incredibly intelligent, but it's susceptible because they're lonely. Or maybe this is a wildly intelligent, generally stable human being who's desperate, desperate for some kind of purpose. Or maybe this is a brilliant human being who's got a sense of purpose in the life, and but there's some kind of deep trauma somewhere de back there that like I mean it's really like being a human being is an incredibly complex and incredibly difficult thing to do well and healthily. And what, how should I say this? The journey towards health is long. The journey towards health is, is arduous and power, uh, tends to overwhelm that process. So the thing that all of these charismatic leaders and, uh, you know, you know, the uh, 
abusive faith leaders tend to have in common is is they're powerful in some way, shape, or form. That can either be by way of weaponry and cultural weaponry, or that can be by way of articulation. That could, I mean, they're influential. Like th- there's a power that they wield, and that power tends to overwhelm and bypass actual processes of health and growth. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, so speaking of of health and growth, uh, why is it that people turn to organized religion? Because I know, you know, in my family, one of the things I've seen with my parents is that almost all of our family friends uh, in Riverside, California, where I'm from, were the result of our temple. And I realized for my parents, religion is actually a form of community. But I'm wondering, what are the other reasons that people turn to organized religion, particularly the people that are, uh, you know, in your congregations? Um, it's a deep, uh, I think, fundamental human need for purpose for connection, uh, a place to feel uh, like an actual place to feel a sense of rooted belonging. Um, the same way that we live in, if to some degree, the same reason we live in neighborhoods. Uh, some people don't, some people prefer to live way the hell out. Most of us prefer to live in neighborhoods. Some of us live in neighborhoods much closer to other folks. There is a deep, deep human capacity, need, desire, drive, to be connected. There's also a deep, we are meaning making machines, right? So we're either inventing our own meaning or we're chasing our own meaning. But the need for meaning is regardless, like ever present. There is no way to escape either, like the, the need for meaning in the pursuit of a whole in human life. The only choices we really have there are like, are we making it up? And that's fine. We're creating meaning for ourselves so that there is a sense of meaning. And that's great. And if that's what's going on, then do it really, really well and be highly responsible for it. And or that that need for me to create some sense of meaning is actually rooted in the desire I have for like some kind of fundamental, actual, at root, deep, like, you know, existential meaning that there actually is that my soul is designed to find. Either way, I function on community and I function on meaning. I don't really function otherwise. I, we live our lives with other people because we really, really want to need to. And we chase meaning in some way, shape, or form. So how do people end up in organized religion? Because organized religion is a way to say both those things are true and good and we want to make room for them. Mm, wow. So one last question <clears throat> uh, around religion. How has your own uh, sort of uh, faith journey changed with age and your sort of understanding <laughs> of these concepts? <laughs> All the time. I Like I said, I really honestly did. I came in through the door in which... Um, I didn't have, I was never asked to come to particular conclusions or land specific places. And so it's not been fluid per se, where it's like I'm loosey goosey and like anything goes. Uh, I'm, but I am, uh, I have been on a long and continue to be on a long and really good journey process, um, evolution. Um, I'm, I'm growing. And so with age, I'm, the primary difference is like, I'm a little bit slower to say things I think might be helpful. Um, that's one. Because um, I've generally been in a position of leadership in my religious journey. So it, it, with age, I'm a little bit slower to say things that I think might be helpful because I want to make sure they're actually helpful. Um, with age, I am far more, um, I'm far more comfortable with conflicts in myself. And uh like recognize them as actual conflicts um, religiously. Like, I don't really know. And not, not even the peaceful, like, I don't really know. 
uh, one, one of my spiritual directors said recently, she said, it's probably better for you to say something like, I don't know right now, which is actually better. But like, I, I'm, I'm, it's not even just that I'm more comfortable not knowing things. I've always been comfortable not knowing things. I've oftentimes been uncomfortable with like actual conflicts in me. Uh, cause they, that's, it causes stress. Uh, but I'm more comfortable with some of the actual things in me that like, w- w- yeah, that stress me out, not understanding or knowing or having a grasp on. So I'm slower mm-hmm. to speak, uh, the older I get and I'm more comfortable with the ways that some of my conflicts are actually problematic inside my own soul. Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. 
Well, what, uh, you know, uh, outside of the sort of start at 17 on your faith journey has led you down this trajectory of your career? I mean, as a musician and, and all the other things you I mean, what's been the trajectory of, of how you got here to the point where you're a writer, a musician and, uh, you know, a pastor? I'm going to die at some point. Uh, and before I do, I want to give away absolutely everything I possibly can of who I am so that my life has been and will have been a gift. That's it. So, you know, when did you make that? When did you come to that conclusion? That I was going to die? Well, obviously that part, but not, you know, everybody knows they're going to die. <laughs> Most people well, don't come to the conclusion you know, that, you know, they're going to I think a lot of people don't actually imagine they really will, but the, the, um, you know, <laughs> like, that's actually true. Like I, gosh, early on. So I, um, I've experienced a fair amount of uh, death around me. So, you know, by the time I was in my mid twenties, I'd been to 20 plus funerals of people who were like with like, not like three or four persons removed. It wasn't like my aunt Judy's best friend's dog's dog walker. It was like friends, best friends, lovers. Like I'd seen just a crap ton of people die. And, um, I, because, and knowing that the, the life was as short as it was, I also like paired that with like, I have these gifts and talents and I want to put them somewhere. Um, and that just the math just made sense really early on. And I, I decided, I don't know if there was like a moment moment, but I decided like before I left, before I left high school, like somewhere in the middle of high school, like I'm going to do something in the direction of the performing arts. Like I was never going to go get a job job just to get a job job. I was going to do some sort of something that had to do with relationship and communication and it was not going to make a whole lot of money, but I was going to go do it because it was going to be meaningful and connected. So I don't know when it actually clicked, clicked. It feels like it's kind of always been there. So let's talk about the music piece, because I think that, you know, you said you knew you were going to pursue a career in the, in the performing arts. And as I've said a thousand times before, you go into the arts knowing that nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. So knowing all that, was your initial goal to become a pastor or to become a musician? Um, I don't know if I drew a hard line between those two things, to be honest with you. Um, I, the musician thing came about because it was afforded me as an opportunity. Um, I, you know, leaving high school, I thought I was going to do theater. And then didn't, and I was working with a group of people to plant a church. And so I was doing some pastoring work that I continued to do for 15, 20 years. And then I was like afforded the opportunity to go on tour and cut a record because my landlord invited me. This story is actually in the book because my landlord invited me to consider playing music. So it, I don't know that I drew like a, a hard line between like, I'm going to go do this and here's my decision. I was taking the opportunities to some degrees that came along the general impetus was I'm going to use the gifts and talents I have. I, I talk and I'm okay at it. And I was learning to play music and I was getting better at songwriting. Um, I'm a storyteller. I wanted to do that. Like I was taking the things that I had on hand and I just committed pretty early on to do something with my gifts and talents. And that found its way into, like I said, for a minute it was theater and then it was like pastoring and teaching and, you know, song leading in a church context. And then it was like song, you know, you know, songwriting and singing and performing and storytelling. And then it became 
more just strict storytelling and retreat leading and then authoring and now I run a podcast. It's been, been sort of like, there haven't been like a, like hard lines where I've said like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm moving on and here's the thing I want to do. Opportunities just continue to present themselves to some degree. I think the thing I want to say here was I've been hesitating to say like, I've just been paying attention. Like I, like I early on, I looked up and someone was handing me the opportunity to get on a stage with a microphone and pretend that I was black elk so that I can educate people about the annihilation of a race of people in the United States. And I wanted to take that. And so I did that. So I was a performing, uh, that was, that was a, I was a theater person. And then I was offered the opportunity by someone else to step into the lives of a bunch of young adults who were trying to figure out what it looked like to believe in the divine and to like live right and healthily. And I was like, okay, I'll use my talents to do that. And then I was handed the opportunity to do the same thing with teenagers. And I was like, okay, I'll go do that. And then I was handed the opportunity to do that with a guitar and a microphone and on and on and on. And I, I just, I recognized the opportunities as, I, as they were coming along. I, I haven't actually sought out a whole lot. Um, I have received my opportunities as, as they've come, which is to say I've been paying attention and I recognize them when they came through the door. Yeah. Well, uh, two questions. Um, you mentioned having seen a lot of people die who were close to you at a young age. And yes. one thing I, I wonder is why it takes something like a tragedy for people to have some sort of a wake-up call meant to confront their mortality. Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know that it always does. I know that in my case, um, again, you know, we're, we are meaning making machines. Um, we are narrative. We are held together by narrative. A uh, human life is held together by narrative. We need story. Like it's not just like we tell stories when we're done doing our business. We do our business because of the narrative that we believe. Like everything runs on the story that we believe about ourselves. And one of the stories or part of the story I'm told as a young, straight, white male really actually had to do with like imperviousness, that I was impervious, that like, I mean, the stories that you get told, whether it's television or books to some degree, but specifically like early media, like these people live forever. I mean, you know, how old is Batman? Like, it's like, you know, Batman has been like a really healthy 38 year old guy for about 55 years. Uh, like the narratives we tell inform the way we understand our own lives and the narratives that I was passed as a young white male had, did, had nothing to do with getting older. That's why people have such a damn hard time with the fact that they do get older is because their legends and their stories, you know, Jennifer Aniston doesn't age. So maybe there's something wrong with me that I do. Um, like these are the narratives we believe. We don't actually get told stories about death. Um, I did not get told stories about death early. They just came crashing through the freaking window. And that's part of why it's necessary. I had to be told a different narrative, but there just aren't a lot of people. Let's be honest. It doesn't sell real well to be like, we're, we're going to do an eight week series about dying well. And we're going to do this for our young adults. So if you're eight, between the age of 17 and 23, we're going to do eight weeks on death and dying well. We're going to think, we're going to tell you how to put together a will. And, uh, and we're going to tell you like how to plan for your thirties and forties, how to plan for your freaking twenties in light of the fact that like at the end of your twenties, you're really only going to have about 25 functional years with your body left. So don't be an idiot. Like no one's having that conversation with people earlier on, especially me. Cause it's like, they would rather use the energy I have <laughs> in my teens and twenties to sell all the crap they're trying to sell instead of learning, instead of teaching me to live well. That's so it takes death to break me out of the patterns. Cause no one's actually telling a responsible story about it. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is, you know, I feel like there's so many people who have talents and, and gifts uh, who hesitate to express them, uh, start to believe that they're not creative or don't have a creative bone in their body, which is nonsense because everybody's creative. Uh, why do you think that is? And how do we unwind that narrative? Um, yeah, we, by we telling better stories uh, and by taking the risks to execute on them. Um, I mean, a part of why I do what I do uh, is that I get to get it. I mean, it was just in Florida and I did this for a room of people. I mean, I'd get to tell pieces of my story in which I've been taking risks uh, financially, economically, and socially since I left my house as a teenager. Um, and I do that to try to, again, hopefully tell an inspiring story that someone else would maybe want to adopt as an aspect or an element of their own. Um, the narrative we're told uh, for the most part culturally in the States is that creativity, creative projects, creative pursuits, your art in a sense, the, the big way to say it, your art is a thing you get to when you're done being responsible. So if you're responsible enough to the machinery uh, that pays rent, that, you know, that pays taxes, if you're responsible enough to the machinery then you earn the right long-term to do the things that are actually best in you that you desire and you love. That's the narrative. And it's freaking everywhere. It's like, it's, and there aren't like specific places from whence this thing comes, but it's absolutely everywhere. And you couldn't find a college student who doesn't feel that pressure to like get the degree you're supposed to, to get so you can make the money you're supposed to make so that eventually maybe you can retire and maybe, maybe enjoy your freaking life. Um, the, whereas like the thing I started doing early on was like, ah, there are things in me that I really, I want to tell stories. I want to get on stage and make people laugh. Like I want to, I, I want to, these creative things that are in me, these creative ideas, like I'm just, I'm going to bank on these and, uh, and live my life this way. And so the way hopefully we move people away from thinking that they're not creative or that's not worth it is by telling stories, not just, not just putting products in the world as creative folks, but telling the story about how did you get there? What risks did you take? How much did it cost you? Did you make money on that first project? Did you not? When you didn't make money on that first project, did you get a loan out? How much is a loan? Are you still paying it off? Like telling the story of what it looks like to live that way because everyone knows what it looks like to go to college, get the damn job, barely pay rent, maybe get married, have some kids, make life more expensive and die unhappy. We're very familiar with that story. The other story is not a really well-told story and the details are really, really mysterious. So I would rather say... I made money on my first record. I lost a crap ton of money on my second record. Let's talk about the difference. I'd rather get into that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think that makes a perfect segue uh, into the book. So what is it that prompted you to write this book of all the books that you could write? Um, two reasons. Uh, one, because like I, I had two books in, in, the, in the queue. Um, the one had to do with the relationship between work and rest. And the other one was this series of stories about um, not buying it is what it is, but actually taking what I have on hand and making something good with it. And uh, when um, the final decision ultimately was made when in March, early March of 2020, all all of my jobs left the table and I had actually literally zero idea where any of my money was going to come from over the course of the next year um, or beyond. And I knew that I was going to have to reinvent. I knew that I was going to have to pick up scraps. I knew that I was going to have to like dig deeper into the same pattern I've been living in, which is like, okay, what do I, what do I have to work with? Cause I'm not going to quit trying to be an artist. I just, I knew that no. I'm like, I'm not going to go get a job at a cafe 
I'm not going to start trading day stocks. I'm not, I'm not going to do that crap. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I'm going to die and I'm going to leave the best I have on the table by the time I do. And because I knew that was true in me, I also knew that there would be a whole lot of folks who were facing the same thing about the things that they were doing that they cared about because a lot of that went away too. So I decided to put this book in the world instead of the one about rest and work because I wanted to meet the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that makes a perfect setup to talking about one of the very first things that you say in the book, which is that there are no dead ends for artists. Dead ends are simply more radical and challenging invitations to create a way forward. Yes. And I think that there are a lot of people who see dead ends as dead ends and give up. And then there are people who see dead ends the way you do. What do you think is the difference between those two people? Um, experience, uh, leadership, failure, time, effort. Uh, you got to try. So, um, it, I mean, the, the image in my head right now is, I mean, you come to the end of some roadway and there's, you know, the, the railing that's there. And if, if you're with someone who's, who's jumped the railing before you're more apt to jump the railing with that person, because what the railing says and the end of the roadway says, again, as a narrative, you come to the end of a road and the end of the road says, this is the end of the road. And it takes usually watching someone else jump the railing and continue on and then, you know, pull the machete out of their backpack and start creating their own pathway forward. It takes watching someone else do it, which is to say it takes artists who are willing to communicate a little bit more about their own process and their own history. Hmm. Wow. So <clears throat> another thing that you say, uh, in the book is that I'd rather make garbage work while honoring and maintaining great relationships than creating best-selling work while becoming the kind of person that nobody wants to be around. And <laughs> yes. I think that that really struck me because I, you know, like there's almost no artist who would actually say, you know what, I'd rather have lousy work. Uh, you know, even if it means I'm going to be around great people, then, Hey, I want to, you know, write a bestseller. Like that's such a counterintuitive way to think about things. Why, like what prompted that? Uh, again, that has a lot to do with like knowing that my life's going to end and knowing what I'm going to feel like when it's over to some degree. Um, really, honestly, a lot of, a lot of my life philosophy comes from the recognition that it, that it, that it ends. And yeah, I want to put great work in the world. I also recognize that the great work I put in the world is going to be a product, a uh, product of, going to be a byproduct of an extension, a growth, uh, that comes out of me being healthy, me being healthy has to do with being in loving and caring relationships. So there's a little bit antithetical, like the sacrifices I'd, I, there's, I mean, one of the stories that I think you read, read in the book is like, I got this project done and it cost me a relationship. And, um, the product is, you know, the product is okay. And it wasn't worth the having lost the relationship. And I just never wanted to do that again. And part of the reason it's not that great a project is because over the course of the last like four or five months, we were working on it. He and I weren't getting along. And so like the direct, there's a direct correlation between having like being in and, and executing and loving, caring relationships and actually making great work. It's really the yeah. same question. Well, so it's funny because I've had experiences where um, I have, you know, outgrown people that I was working with and that became a source of conflict. And that there were moments while building an unmistakable creative where we were having to choose between the future of the company and a really big project and the relationship with somebody who worked with us. And, you know, not through our own doing, it cost us the relationship. I've always regretted that. And at the same time, the project would have never gotten made. It, you know, I feel yeah. like um, it's not that black and white in my mind. No, it's not. 
it's all wrapped up together. And the reason I, the reason I present it that way is, be, you know, in the book with like, I would rather have, I would rather make crap work and have loving relationships is <laughs> because the focus on, you know, the, the focus on being a healthy person long-term kind of is the ball game. So I, 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 uh, creating work regularly is part of how I maintain my own health. Like this is in me to do. So I stay healthy in part by making good work and by making it by executing on work. And the health that I bring to the table as a, as a, as an artist, um, is about the health of my relationships. If I'm not well in my relationships, if I'm not, if I'm not well in general as a person, if I'm disconnected from people, I'm not going to make as good work. So the, like, the, you know, the, the goofy kind of like half-assed stories we tell about like, well, you have Van Gogh and like all these tortured artist types. Like that's really cute. One, like we've got like barely 10 years of Van Gogh's work and I'm just not of the opinion that like he wouldn't have made even better work had he gotten his crap together, gotten his, got himself emotionally stabilized and like lived deeper into his life. We would have more Van Gogh and it would probably be better. So I don't buy the direct correlation between unhealthy folks and their art. I think that's trash. I think these are highly talented people who are being unhealthy and whose talents would have been even more, more rightly fine, you know, uh, uh, t- uh, yeah, fine tuned in health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that really struck me that you've talked about was this difference between, you know, being celebrated, uh, for your achievements and actually loving the work that you do. And, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a world that, you know, puts everybody's accomplishments on public display through social media. Uh, and yet, you know, I think that there's this sort of conflict almost of, you know, wanting to love your work, but also seeking validation for it. Yeah. Do both. Um, I think what other people, what other people think about your work matters. Just be careful who those folks are. So ha- like having layers, one of the things I'll coach artists in is like, you'll have, you know, have layers. Like if there are people in your life, who know your work and you show them something and they're like, "Mm, that's not very good. That should mean something like, don't ignore that. Uh, Don't always go Romeo and Juliet where like, if you have a different opinion than the people around you, they're all wrong. No, they're probably right. Uh, So if there's, if there are people who are familiar with your work and care about you, um, have some folks around you who like, Hey, this is the thing I'm working on and they have an opinion about it and it makes a difference. And then there's the next layer of folks who are maybe more like fans who have been on board for a while. Um, and if, you know, if you put something <clears throat> in the world and your immediate fans, like, you know, Kevin Kelly's whole thousand people, if those thousand people don't resonate with what you're doing, then yeah, you might've missed because the art you're putting in the world is an extension of relationship and an expression of relationship. And so if you missed in relationship, you want to readjust. And then there's a layer beyond that where like you're making new fans and just kind of general, you know, people are paying attention to the arts and maybe those opinions really shouldn't matter much at all. So I, I think that I think both things happen at the same time. It, I don't think it's just a division between like, well, at least I'm happy with my work, regardless of the affirmation I'm getting. I don't think that's how the, that's how human psychology works. I want people that I care about and people who care about me to enjoy and benefit from what I do. That's part of what it means for me to enjoy my work. It's a communal, it's a relationship thing. I make art. If I'm just doing what I do and I leave it on my computer, if I'm just doing what I do and I just, and, and just like I write it in a journal, that's fine, but that's journaling. That's archiving. 
it becomes art when it's in relationship to other people, which is to say that like there is, there is this weird muddy space between like affirmation and self-confidence. I want to be self-confident enough to make the thing, but the affirmation I find in other people enjoying it is actually part of it becoming art. So you kind of have to have both. Hmm. So, that I think makes a perfect segue to talking about this whole idea of rejection. Uh, you know, you say that rejection being told no should be a welcome part of the process of life and business and ministry and art making and growth of all kinds. Getting a no from someone rarely means the end of the road. Hearing yes. no or being denied can be a tremendous gift. How do people find the motivation to keep going in the face of rejection? That's really good. So I the first part of the answer I would want to give from the other side of the people handing out rejection is if you're in a position of power uh, and you're going to give someone a no, do your best to pass on a few reasons why. So be more helpful about the no's you hand out. So if you're going to say this doesn't work, uh, then like, you know, say, and here's why this would have worked better if you, this, that, the other. So in the places where I've gotten no's, um, studio work where I'll bring something to the table and I'm working with the producer and, you know, she or he will say, that's actually a bad idea. And then they'll walk me through why and they'll show me. I'm like, oh, and then I learn and I grow. So the first part of the answer for me has to do with like, if you're going to delve out no's, if that's part of your job is you have to say no to people, do it responsibly and lovingly and wisely and pass along some of those reasons. Then on the other side of that, and that's, that's the story I tell in the book is, you know, if someone hands you a no, ask. Okay. What was it about this? What could have been better? And maybe you don't get an answer, but you know, there is just, there is a sheer force of will moment here where like, you really don't have to allow that no to be like emotionally definitive. Like take, take your punch because you got punched. That's fine. But then ask why, like, why is my face so punchable? Like ask that next question. So the, you know what I'm saying? Like if, if you're in the position to hand out no's, then do it responsibly and say, this is why. But if you're getting a no, take the next step and be like, and ask the question, like, okay, what, what was it that, what was it that didn't work? Which then takes me back to why you want to have some concentric circles and spheres of folks who are also paying attention to work with whom you're in conversation. If you, if all you're doing is creating work in like in isolation and which is, that was, that was the story in the book is this young woman who was writing poetry and she didn't have a network. She didn't have relationships. She'd been writing poetry. She'd been kind of keeping it on her own. And she had sent some stuff out to like the, 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 the Atlantic and the New Yorker. This is massive magazines. And she got no's. And she was so miffed that she got no's. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and the audience member says, well, have you considered maybe your work isn't good enough for the New Yorker or the Atlantic? And she couldn't handle that. Part of that is just a gentle immaturity is like, you got to be able to get a no from the freaking New Yorker. Like you have to. If you're going to be an artist, the other side of the coin is like, she very clearly then doesn't, I shouldn't say clearly, I would guess <laughs> that she probably doesn't have a whole lot of folks around her who are helping her refine her work by saying, this is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. They might just be a bunch of yes. People who are like, everything you make is magical and it is decorated with fairy dust and you're the greatest artist that's ever been. And no one make work like you and you're the best. She might be having a lot of friends like that. But she needs to be having friends that are more like, hey, um, this is good. That was better. And so developing that over the course of time, whether and now it's really easy, developing like networks of people on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram who like pay attention to work and then asking for feedback. What do you like about this? What do you not like about this? 
that's part of how you weed that thing out in you as, as opposed to, like I said, just creating a work and then taking one big swing. Don't do that. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really fascinating. Uh, so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. The unmistakable sure. creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, courage, the courage in, um, in an artist and a maker to actually do the thing that's in them. Um, and to not try to do the thing that they're supposed to do or try to do the thing that they, they, um, to not pull punches. What makes a thing unmistakable is when an artist really recognizes and works at the thing that's actually in them and then puts it in the world and offers it to people. That makes it unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? Yeah. So if you just search my name, Justin McRoberts, I'm, I'm kind of everywhere on the internet that you want to be, unless you want to be on like, what is it? The Silk Road or whatever you can buy weapons and, um, what have you. I'm, I'm not there, but uh, Instagram, uh, is where I spend a lot of my time. I, I do still like Twitter. I'm on Facebook some. And then uh, my podcast is called At Sea with Justin McRoberts, and we drop episodes every week. Awesome. Uh, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.